This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Craig Turlson is a writer of neo-noir mysteries whose novels include Correction Line, Fall in One Day, and Surf City Acid Drop. And today we're going to be talking about our shared love of samurai films. And I have so been looking forward to this conversation. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on Geek 4. That's great. I've been looking forward to it, Michael. Like I, just, I, I know shared love of anything. It's But this one, yeah, for sure. It's it's just so much fun to talk about stuff that we're passionate about. Um mm. When did you first take the initial step into samurai films? Like, like what was your background? Well, I was thinking a lot about this. You know, it's kind of funny because I was trying to figure out what the timeline was. I grew up with Westerns, totally with Westerns, and a specific kind of Western. Because late night Yorkton television, I wasn't in Yorkton, but we got the Yorkton television station, was always playing these weird Clint Eastwood movies. Mm-hmm. And I had never even heard the term spaghetti Western. And I got like so into them and there was a kind of vibe to them. I didn't understand. I didn't know that, you know, the history behind them or whether they were shot in Italy or Spain or whatever. I didn't know anything about that. And I just fell in love with them. And then I think the samurai thing came a lot later because Yorkton wasn't playing no samurai films. I'll tell you that. (laughs) No, I suspect not. No, no, they didn't have it in their catalog. I think they kept playing the Eastwood stuff because that's all they had in their catalog. That's put on Hang Em High again. I don't know, right? So I think what happened was like much later when I started to get into world cinema, which is when I lived in Toronto and in a short period in Calgary too, they had a great art house there called the Plaza and I would go see stuff there. And I think what the connection was, it's almost like footnotes in books because I love footnotes in books. If I'm reading an author, say nonfiction author, and he says, go read this person. And I'll do that. It's like a rabbit trail back. And I heard somewhere along the way that there was this movie called Yojimbo. Mm. And Yojimbo was basically Fistful of Dollars. And I said, what? Like Clint Eastwood acted in a Japanese movie? I don't get it. What? And that, you know, then again, I had to find it. And that those were not easy to find. And when I found Yojimbo, that was probably the first, that was the gateway. Because I've seen Yojimbo more than any of them. But it was almost like this ongoing I say it this way, almost a way that I'd ran out of spaghetti westerns to watch. I had seen the good, the bad, and the ugly so many times. I could recite Fistful of Dollars, and I loved it. I loved it so much. I loved all of it, and then I discovered this whole new thing, which was kind of like finding—I don't know what—the Rosetta Stone or something of of like how did this happen? And then you start realizing these things, like. Kurosawa and Leone and they're talking to each other and you throw some peck and paw in there and it's like all this weird soup but here was a whole bunch of films that I'd never seen before and I got yeah I got obsessed like I get I get obsessed with things and I got obsessed with samurai films. I had a similar experience it wasn't westerns though I, I definitely liked westerns. When I started university in 94 um, I, there was this amazing video store that just opened up in Waterloo called Gen X and, um, it's, it's no longer there, but, um, I still have a Gen X t-shirt somewhere in my house. I don't know if it was the videotape box or one of the people behind the counter who said, oh, you like Star Wars? Hidden Fortress is the basis of Star Wars or Star Wars is based on Hidden Fortress, which is kind of true. It's, it's, it's much less true than Jimbo and Fistful of Dollars, which is a remake. Um, 
But I mean, there are elements that are certainly there. So I went and I, I took this thing home. Hidden Fortress wouldn't be the film that I recommend to people who are just thinking about getting into samurai film, but it led me to Yojimbo. When I, when I brought the tape back, they're like, yeah, check out this one. And, and then Yojimbo Sanjuro are the, are the two that I've watched probably more than any. Me too. But it was, again, that, that footnote. I love that, that phrase, the footnote of film. You like this thing? You go over here and check it out. And it's interesting. I mean, the connections between samurai films and Westerns are so, like, they're maybe not immediately obvious to people who haven't watched them, but they're so there. Oh, big time. And it's a weird circle, right? Because you start to learn, you know, as I'm, I'm a film geek as well, and I dig deep, like I dig deep into film criticism and I love it. And I'm reading that Kurosawa loved John Ford movies, uh-huh. just loved John Ford movies. So he says, I'm going to make a John Ford movie that's going to have samurai instead of cowboys. And then, okay, so he makes this Western and then Leone, Leone doesn't remake it. Leone steals the script and doesn't tell anybody. And he makes you a Jimbo. Sorry, he makes makes Fistful of Dollars. And, you know, it's kind of a weird circle. And I found out quite recently that, you know, because of the lawsuit, um, Leone had to give a whole bunch of money to Kurosawa. Like a whole bunch of the box office went to Kurosawa. And it's like, what? You know, so there, there's this big cycle. And, and I think what's happening even more so lately, because I think actors are cagey. Mm-hmm. I think Eastwood's cagey. How much did Eastwood know or look at Mifuni? Because mm. you look at Mifuni and you kind of go, everything Eastwood's doing, Mifuni was doing first. Mm-hmm. And and just his mannerisms, his, his the way that he wears, I don't know if that's a kimono or what's called a hitari. You know, like he's wearing this thing. And why did Eastwood wear a poncho? Yeah. And, 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 and Mifuni hides his arms in, in, in his, right? Why did Eastwood hide his arms? I, I swear Eastwood scratches his face like Mifuni does. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a recent documentary, I haven't watched it yet, on Mifuni. And I really wanted to see, would Eastwood come clean and say, yeah, I based it on him. Because Eastwood says a lot of it, you know, he was coming out of rawhide and, and he wanted to do something different. He wanted to do something more anti-hero. Um, he had to be watching Mifuni like so much. The manner, the manners is, are too close. I too mean, close. if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from Mifuni. Like Mifuni, Alan Delon, like th- there's a very, very fine layer of really cool actors. Mifuni's at the top. And that ragged samurai look, the scratch in the face, the, the devil may care look in his eye. Well, it's, it's a swagger almost, right? And it's just like, he's just swaggering into town. And at the end of Sanjuro, which I just watched the end of again last night, Sanjuro goes like, see you around. Yeah. It's like, what samurai says that? What was the original Japanese? See you around. That's the next level of my obsession is to, uh, is to learn Japanese enough to, to watch these films. I, well, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that's what I wanted to say going on this podcast is like, I don't know Japanese I, at all. And my, my, what do you call it? Um, pronunciations will be way off kind of oh thing. yeah yeah you know, but um the other one i wanted to mention in that in that way of like call it homage or whatever of course is the connection between seven samurai and magnificent seven yes i'm pretty sure i saw magnificent seven a whole bunch of times first mm-hmm. and then discovered much later this movie called seven samurai which is one of the best films of the 20th century yeah and i'm yeah. just like totally floored by it. i watch it every every few years i watch it again but don't you know like when you look at the Japanese actor, I don't know their names, uh, who played uh, the master swordsman, 
Mm. And you look at James Cor- Coburn mm-hmm. in, in the Magnuson 7, you're going to go, wow, like, are they casting like this on purpose? The mannerisms, the, the body shape and stuff like that is so similar, you know, and, and of course, Magnificent Seven with that. I like it, but it's got that goofy soundtrack. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm just like, it's not the same movie, you know. No. So. no. Well, and that, that's interesting because, yeah, I mean, that's a direct remake, um, acknowledged remake, uh, much more so <laughs> yeah. than the others. But I mean, and, and I mean, you brought up a really good point. Kurosawa is influenced by John Ford. I mean, it's all, there's also a very heavy influence from, um, I forget which, um, is it Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest? Oh, oh yes. It's really strong in there that, you know, the, the Continental Agent plays both sides. It's much more inspired, but, you know, Kurosawa is always drawing on American influences and then bringing it into historical context, which is, I think, why in part so many of these samurai films are quite accessible for for north american audiences uh they're dealing with a history and a feudal system that is really complicated and difficult to understand but because it's based on things that are like american stories that stuff doesn't really matter to get to to get the the emotional story and that's that's i think you asked me how i got into them and, and even now even more i think i'm into them more now than i've ever been um partly because of the storytelling and the mythic nature of them. Um, and when I started to learn over the last three years, I finally dug in to Japanese history because it's not really taught. It certainly wasn't taught in my school, you know, uh, and even when I was in college, I didn't take any Japanese courses, but um, I did come across a book. I remember this in art college. I was in art school and I came across a book on the code of Bushido mm-hmm. and I became very interested in it. And I did some paintings at that time around that idea, notably how the code of Bushido shows up in world war II through the kamikaze pilots and such, right? Mm-hmm. But it was much, much years later that I kind of went back into it and started to study the periods and understand how, um, like most of these films come in the Tokugawa period or the Edo period. There are outside of that, you know, but again, you kind of go, why? Why did they happen then? And as you get to know the history more and more, they just open up. They open up even more. You know, yes, all the the great storytelling is there, and that's why actually Rashomon became one of my favorite films. Mm. Because Rashomon, you don't think of as this kind of, you know, major samurai flick, but the storytelling in that, the the Kurosawa doing something that not only had no one done before, but he did it so well that then everyone started copying it. Mm. Like that, the Rashomon effect rippled through everything. It rippled through sitcoms, it rippled through animated features. Oh, a way of telling a story more than one way. And as a writer, oh my goodness, that really fascinated me. And so I got deep into that. It's hard to overstate how influential that that film is. Mm-hmm. And you raise an interesting point. Like Rashomon wouldn't probably make most people's top samurai films. But in my understanding of Japanese cinema is they, they tend to distinguish period films, which include samurai films. So things like Kwaiden, which is a horror film set in the similar period, would be lumped in with Yojimbo uh, because they're set in the same historical period. But Rashomon's The Four Points of View uh, and Where Does Truth Lie, it's so influential, so influential in storytelling. And you mentioned, because I was reading about this a little while ago, you know, I'd come across this term, um, I'm going to pronounce it badly, but it's uh, Shambara, Shambara, Shambara. Mm-hmm. And they are the samurai films because which literally translates to the sword fighting, the sword mm-hmm. fight. 
and the other one, which is it's Jidagaiki, <laughs> I can spell it, I can't say it, right? But those are the period dramas, period films, exactly what you said, and the samurais play into that. So it's a very wide thing in that Japanese cinema. And and, and like anything, there's overlap, you know. Mm-hmm. But I want to say one more thing about Rashomon is that um, then I got into finally into Japanese um, literature mm. and reading the short stories um, that Rashomon was based on. Mm-hmm. There's a collection of short stories uh, based on, uh, I think it's called In a Grove or something. Yes, a couple stories like that 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 formed what Kurosawa made the movie out of, and those um, stories really gave me yet another layer to watch for now when I'm when I'm watching these films. Kurosawa is obviously the primer for everyone. His stuff is so good, so good, so good, and just a, a huge list. And that's just his samurai films. His his other films are amazing too. Where do, where are you going next? Great question, actually, because I, I think <laughs> in my naivete, at one point I thought, well, Kurosawa was the only one making samurai films, you know. And then I started to discover some of this other stuff. And um, through connections on Twitter, through reading about this stuff, and I'd hear them mention, or, you know, you ever go, and if you ever do, try to get off their, what is it called, Mojo mm. on YouTube. Top 10 whatevers, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's gone five hours for me. Top 10, things like that. And of course, top 10 samurai films. And I see these other ones mentioned. I go, wait, Kurosawa didn't make that one. He didn't make that one. He didn't make that one. And I started exploring them. And um, especially, oh my goodness, I can't believe it took me so long to watch this. But uh, Harry Kari, however you say that, Harry Kari, Harry Kari. Oh my goodness, what a film. I just can't believe it. I just can't believe the depth of the film, what that's getting at, what that's getting at with the Japanese understanding of honor. That's just an amazing film. Anybody should watch that. Yeah, yeah. that is my second favorite film ever made. Well, it, it is the only, only film I would put up against Seven Samurai as, yep. as the best totally. samurai film ever made. And I think actually for me, it beats it. Um, there wow. is something about that film and, and, and the story structure. And that's something that it's been a while since I've studied uh, Japanese cinema, reading the literature, but the story structure is not always talked about the way that I think it should be. And mm-hmm. that where, you know, the main character comes in and basically tells a story to the court that the court all knows, and you don't understand why he's telling the story. Uh, and and so much of it is static. So much of it is just him sitting and they're all around him. It's so beautifully shot. Yeah. And then you get into the, like why he's there and what he's actually doing. Is it story structure for you? I mean, that's a really interesting comment. Is it story tru- structure for you that makes it one of your favorites? I think so. Yeah. I think so. There is action in the film. Mm-hmm. But what captivates me is the way he tells the story and the way the filmmaker then structures the story. Kind of him coming back. And then you have these flashbacks to what happened to, to bring him to the, the place. And you're right. Like it's all those, all those questions about um, the corruption of, of the, of the ruling class. Like people think of samurais, you know, people who don't watch the films maybe have a, a, a concept of, of these are all about honor and, and, and loyalty and all that stuff. The best ones aren't. The best ones are in the periods after the shogunate has fallen apart and like everyone's kind of off on their own and you see the corruption and the, there's that shot of the, the samurai armor at the end 
Um, oh yeah. Of, of Harakiri, which I mean, Kobayashi just, he just leaves it there. And it's, it's unclear if we're supposed to believe that the whole system is just this hollow armor or if it, the, the, the feudal class is the, the hollow armor, something is hollow. Uh, <laughs> and like good art, it doesn't tell you. But he just, he leaves it. That's the brilliant part of it. He just leaves it. Right. So good. Well, in parts of it, like, you know, I can't believe again that I just, I just saw it this year mm. and, and, and the uh, performing seppuku with a bamboo sword, like one of the most excruciating scenes I've watched. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's graphic, which is the idea of, of him creating that ritual suicide with, with a bamboo sword. It's just like, oh. no. but story structure exactly. And I think that's what just grabbed me so deep. There's a couple things there. Um, I want to talk about that. The facade of honor. Mm. they're looking at the facade of honor that is so deeply ingrained and mythic within the culture um fed into my latest obsession has been shout out to this podcast the samurai archives podcast has been going on for a long time and i've listened to so many episodes repeatedly and it started to unreveal it started to reveal the myth of the code of bushido the myth of honor, the myth that samurais only think about their death all the time. Well, they think about their death because it's probably going to happen, but they really are, their honor has to do with who pays them the most. They're mercenaries. Yeah. And the samurai archives uncovered this so much. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, really? Because you're thinking like, I had no idea. And then I watched Hari Kari and it's like, it's all there. Uh-huh. And and I ripped I ripped off that line, that honor as a facade, because that was just <laughs> too beautiful. I said, I'm grabbing that one. If Leone can get away with stealing stuff, you can get away with stealing. I can. Stuff. It's, it's, a long, it's a long history of stealing. And, and I think that um, there's something about that, again, that, and as a writer, and I've really learned this with my new book about reveal, 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 reveal. So you got the guy coming in, you don't know what his story is, and he begins to reveal the story. And he goes, just a guy surrounded by a bunch of people, but he reveals it. And one of my other favorite books is Frankenstein. And Frankenstein has this envelope structure. You know, people know it mostly from the movie, but if you study the literature and the envelope structure, this book has this kind of stuff that goes inward, you know, what the story is. And it's reveal, it's stories within stories within stories. And I think that's what Harry Carey is too. Mm-hmm. It's a revelation thing. And you are just so drawn in. I couldn't take my eyes away. Just... It's remarkable. The only time that I've taught samurai films in any way shape or form is when i teach a a course on kind of an introduction to world cinema and you know we look at japan and france and brazil and spain and so i'm only ever allowed to spend because of the structure about three weeks is the most i can get out of 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 japan and it's that agonizing decision of where do i start what samurai film can i choose that will be the best representation for an introductory audience that they'll that they'll grab onto it as well as paying attention to other non-samurai japanese cinema and i've shown harakiri a few times now and inevitably it it works mm. it works i've i've shown i've shown yajimbo as well and it worked as well but i think like like we were talking about earlier though there is this rich history there is this code there is all of this stuff that you could spend your time learning about to contextualize everything it's accessible enough the idea of a transition of one way of life to another 
the loss of something. You know, those are, I don't hesitate to use the term universal, but they're, they're quite common, um, you know, whether it's young people experiencing the transition from high school to university or, you know, school to the workforce. Everybody can relate to the feeling of being in a transitional time where the things you built your life around, the way you understood the world has changed fundamentally and you are now feeling out of place. And I think Samurai Film gets, gets that in a way that is just totally relatable. And then you have cool swords and top knots. <laughs> yeah, cool swords. On top of that, you get cool swords and top knots, right? Yes. You know, and, and I think that's, that's exactly where I live, too, where you're talking about why are there so many stories of, of Ronan? Mm. Ronan uh, literally translated as the wave man, uh, set adrift you know, um, lost, out of time, out of place, all these various things, masterless samurai, right? You look at Westerns. Now, I had, I could do a whole nother episode on Peckinpah because I was not a fan of Peckinpah. I was deeply obsessed by Peckinpah. And I read so much criticism on his work and so much of his themes were about men out of place, out of time. Time had moved on, they had not. That's exactly what The Wild Bunch is about. Mm -hmm. They moved on and they didn't move with it. Um, one of my favorite films is Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid mm. um, with, with Coburn and Chris Christopherson. There's lines in it like, you know, about getting old. We're, we're getting old. We're like, they are out of time. They're out of place again. Uh, things move on. They don't. You know, and the Billy the Kid character is trying, plays by Christopherson, is trying to um, hold back, hold back uh, and not move. And Coburn is forced to move you know, a long kind of stuff. And it's all the same. It's, it, it's the same themes, the same themes yeah. you see in these Ronin films, you know, with um, uh, the beginning, which one is it? The beginning um, of, I guess, well, there's the beginning of Yo Jimbo, but there's also the, the beginning of Seven Samurai. Remember the beginning of Seven Samurai where he comes in and he has to, he's the priest and he cuts his top knot off to yes. show that he's not somebody else and goes, you know, and, and again, he saves somebody and he saves them. Right. Or, or, Another thing that I outright stole was when uh, Yojimbo, he throws the stick in the air and the stick shows him which way to go. I went, oh my goodness, I'm taking that. And I have, I have a story where that happens, where someone throws a stick up in the air and they follow the stair. I don't care if no one picks it up. It's like, for me, it's like, that's just epic. And that's epic, mythic. These are all these words that come. Okay, so epic and mythic, the last thing I wanted to say around epic and mythic, Harikari brings it down to something else. It's yeah. more than epic and mythic. It's human condition stuff. It's human condition where you kind of go, what is honor? What is authority? What are these things? What are you willing to die for? It's just, it's a deeply sad film. You know, like I just, oh my goodness. Yeah. I gotta go watch it again. It's not one a lot of people know. There is a Criterion version of it. So it, yep. it is accessible, but most people know the Kurosawa films, but uh, Masaki Kobayashi is, a, is not one to sleep on. No. Uh, he made... I mean, that, Quieten, the horror film, all great, great stuff. What about more recent stuff? There have been a couple of resurgences in the samurai genre over the last few years. Anything? Yeah, they keep popping up, you know, and I'm not super interested in them. You know, for one thing, with CGI, they're getting like super gory. <laughs> have you seen Shogun Assassin? Oh, I don't know if I've seen that one. Uh, it's based... Um... It's based on a, a manga called Lone Wolf and Cub. Well, I know Lone Wolf and Cub. Totally. Okay, so so in the seventies, um, 
I think I think Lone Wolf and Cub was a series, and it was edited into one film for American audiences called Shogun Assassin, and it is it is so like grindhouse gory, like orange blood spewing everywhere. You were talking Tarantino, right? Yeah. Oh, it's totally Tarantino. You see Tarantino in in Kill Bill when Lucy Liu takes the person's head and and the blood spurting out, right? And I can kind of get it, but sometimes I just go, no, I just can't, I just can't do it, right? You know, and so. I, these ones, these ones come out. They keep remaking, whether it's Forty Seven Ronin or, or Thirteen Assassins. They they remake them and they come out and they just, I don't know. This is a funny thing, right? When a movie's in black and white from the fifties, it feels more historical for me because history was all in black and white, right? Yes. When I think of history, ancient Japan was in black and white. They didn't have color yet. Yeah, when they were taking film of ancient Japan, it was black. And white. <laughs> no sense. But I will say. Maybe these aren't super modern, but the the samurai keeps showing up. You mentioned Alan Delon, mm-hmm. little samurai. Let's count how many times I've seen that film. I'm obsessed with that film because there's something about the modern day gangster that is not. And the other one, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog, way the samurai. Right, love that movie so much. Forrest Whitaker, and and although I will say, I got I recently watched it again. Some of the stuff he's talking about samurai, it's just it's more mythic than actual. And mm-hmm. I'm, in this, I'm in this weird in-between place for it because so much study that I've done over the last few years, including with the samurai archives, shows me that so much of this was not true. It was just not true. Yeah. You know? And so Ghost Dog picks up on some of the stuff that I consider to be not true. It's still a very cool film. And Jerry Mush is one of my favorite filmmakers. So. Yeah, no, it's a great one. It is interesting how, at least in, in, in American in an American context, the samurai continues to reappear, often connected with the the, the crime the crime story. I really dug. Um, Beat Tekashi did um, Zatoichi, and he retold the story of the blind swordsman. Now this would have been uh, early two thousands. Okay, he won a bunch of awards. He's an amazing filmmaker. His crime films are unbelievable, and I was very leery of anybody trying to remake the blind swordsman. Is that what it, is it called, Zariachi, or what was it called? Zatoichi, The Blind Swordsman. I really enjoyed it. It oh, was I really see good. So it's early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other ones I haven't seen. There's a new 13 Assassins. and It's very yeah. spurty. Like, yeah. I mean, the blood spurts out. It's very spurty, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I can take so much of that. And I'm just like, oh, no, come on. You know, I'm like, <laughs> ever seen the uncut version of, of the Kill Bill scene when Uma Terman goes, just batshit, you know, and then it yes. threw one apart. Yeah, no. <laughs> so there's the version that's in the film and then there's the uncut version. I've watched the uncut version. I was like, oh my goodness. It's absolutely insane. It's all special effects. You realize that, but you kind of go, ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. I mean, there's a 70s period where, where, where samurai film were kind of going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think CGI has has intensified that to a whole other level. Like the Lady Snowbird stuff is is is, yeah. is pretty violent, and yep. I don't mind the violence if it's if it's so over the top that it's funny or mm-hmm. bizarre. Um, yeah. But it's the super uncomfortable <laughs> stuff. That, well, you mentioned and, yeah, Lady, Lady is it Lady Snowblood? Yes, Lady yeah. Snowblood. I, I, Snowblood. I just actually just watched that not too long ago. And again, I'm with you. You know, if it reaches a certain level, and it's actually with Tarantino, I'm I'm mostly fine with it because he does that. He's got some scenes that are excruciating, but you know, um, like you take, 
I just want to talk about violence for a second. You talk about Tarantino or you talk about those crazy Saw movies. Well, I can't watch mm-hmm. Saw stuff. That's just torture porn, you know. Um, but Tarantino's doing something else. I mean, he's doing this homage to something else. And not just not just pure homage because he's, he's creating something new. And, and I feel like a lot of these uh, people were creating something new again. And, and I love, we're talking a lot about the circle, right? The circle of Western and Eastern. It's happening. It's, it's just, and it continues to happen in, in, in interesting ways. And there's ones along the way that are just kind of bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, but I don't know. There's a part of me, maybe I'm a kid again, Michael. It's just like, it's like there's, they're uber cool. You know, when, when, when that dog walks out with the hand in his mouth. Oh, at the beginning of your Jimbo. I'm partially going, oh, that's gross. And oh, is that ever cool? Yes. So, Jeremouche, who I know has got to be a fan as well. Jeremouche makes a film called Dead Man with yeah. Johnny Depp, all yep. in black and white, because it's in history. American history was also black and white. <laughs> and I think that there's some scenes in it that they say, this is kind of like the beginning of Jimbo, kind of when you walk in. I think maybe a dog even runs by it with a hand or something. It's this weird like circle of stuff that I just dig a lot. These filmmakers are doing something really interesting. Like you, I mean, you, you brought up Tarantino, like the end of Sanjuro is shocking in its level of violence for the time. I mean, that would have been made early 60s, I think. Wrote it down, 62. Yeah. And it's blood everywhere, but it's black and white, so it's it's not as, as violent. And then of course the next filmmaker is going to do the same thing, but in color, and then it just it just intensifies. But you know the story? I just want to stop here saying, do you know the story of that of Sanjuro's the blood spurt? I don't know. I've probably heard it, but it's been a while. I think what it was, it was actually a mechanical failure. <laughs> I love this. I, I've watched it so many times because I just love watching it. And everyone's, if you look at the people who are looking on, they're kind of shocked by it because no one expected it to happen. And I think the squibs or whatever they had, they all went off at once or something in some kind of weird way. And you have this fountain of blood. And hello, you have just created a new thing for movie makers <laughs> by doing that. Which, if you get stabbed with a sword, that's what's going to happen. You would think blood. So yeah. That's true. <laughs> I also know you've been you've been. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to say it. Like incorporating your love of samurai films into your new your new novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I think incorporating is a nice way of saying stealing. Yes. You know. Um, <laughs> I'm. I'm a person. Someone said this to me lately. Kind of thing. I get obsessed about things, and I get obsessed hard. I geek. I geek hard for for different things. And this geekdom around samurai is going to show up in my writing as most stuff does, you know, follow one day I learned about the secret history of LSD and I geeked hard on that. And that comes out in my book. So in this one, I think what it was, was a deep interest in um, the stuff I was learning about the Kodo Bushido mean being untrue, Mm. that it was created as a myth you know, and it was a myth that was picked up on. And I'm really always super interested in hidden histories, hidden truths, things. And this is actually the LSD thing too. A lot of people don't know the early history of LSD and how it was used in medical experiments and and good. And it's actually being used again by uh, universities like Johns Hopkins to look at what its effect is on things. And so the hidden history of, of samurai, again, I'm learning all this stuff. And I uh, created a, a story, which the working title, which I really hope stays, is called Samurai Bluegrass. And um, 
It is based on a story that I had published in a magazine called Carve a number of years ago. It was called Carve because it was named after Raymond Carver. And I wrote a short story called Samurai Bluegrass. And that's the story where I have the guy throwing the stick up and, and the stick points a certain way kind of stuff, right? And I think um, Samurai Bluegrass is basically, I can, it's one of the very few novels I can give a short pitch to because um, I know um, I know what this book's about. And sometimes people ask me, what are you writing about? I go, I don't know, the human condition, something, you know. <laughs> but this one, a 12th century samurai, because that's the thing too, a lot of people think of this in the Edo period, but samurais were around probably eight or 900 when they began uh, during the Heian period, uh, about, you know, just before 1185. And this 12th century samurai believes that he has died, but he wakes up in 1984 Toronto. Mm. He wakes up in the in the body of a person named Gordon Clement. Gordon Clement, known as Gordo to his friends, is one of the most Canadian names ever. Gordo. <laughs> I just I landed on it and I just kept it and I went with it. And I said Gordo. So this character's name is Gordo, and he is in 1984 Toronto, but he's a 12th century samurai, and that's uh, it's time travel and it is like so out of place trying to think of what is it like to move from the 12th century to the 21st century. And so along the way, I, you know, I have a lot of him trying to make sense out of the 20th century and also longing deeply to go back to the 12th century where things were better, simple, and all in black and white. <laughs> so, so I'm almost done. I'm literally like a couple of weeks away. I've been through so many edits. I've had a couple of amazing beta readers and um, I'm ready to, um, as writers do, they pitch these things to agents and publishers and stuff. So I'm hoping in the next year or something, look for Samurai Bluegrass if they let me keep the title. Uh, you've been talking about this project for a while, so I'm very excited to read it. And having been in Toronto in the 1980s, that's terrible. And I got to tell you that the story that created Samurai Bluegrass, this is a brief one. The Samurai Bluegrass story that was published in Carve magazine was out of one night. I was in the Apocalypse Club, real club in Toronto in the 80s. It was a punk club. It had black walls. All the goths were there. And their plane was Bill Monroe, oh. the father of bluegrass music. And it's Kentucky Bluegrass Boys. Bill was about in his 80s. I think he died a couple of years later. And they were all in super bright white light. And they played bluegrass to this weird crowd of goths and punkers and black walls. And no one believes me. There's a poster of it on my studio right here. There's a poster of it. No one believed me this night happened. It was the most surreal night of my life because the goths so dug the bluegrass music. They loved it. And I had in the Samurai Bluegrass original story, this guy who was obsessed with samurai said, these bluegrass players are like samurai. They're up there playing in their white suits with honor in front of a crowd, not caring who the crowd is. That was the impetus of the whole novel. One weird night in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That like, I mean, I I know CBGB stands for Country Bluegrass. You know, the 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 punk club in in New York. Um, my understanding is they didn't actually play country or bluegrass anymore. That's uh, what CBG stands for. Uh, country bluegrass. Yeah, yeah. CBGB. I did not know that. Yeah, huh. it used to be, and then and then the punks took over and played their music. Whoever booked Bill Monroe into the Apocalypse Club in Toronto in the 80s was either insane or brilliant. Or both. Why would you play bluegrass to a whole bunch of goth punkers? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Amazing. But they loved it. 
<laughs> they loved it. <laughs> uh, are you up some for some quick, fast answer stuff? Give it a shot. These can be about anything, anything that you are a fan of. And I know you are a fan of many, many things, sir. Yeah. Halloween or Christmas, which holiday are you geekier about? Oh, my God. What a question. <laughs> oh, I got to go on record. I got to go on record for hating Halloween. I hate Halloween so much. <laughs> I hate the money spent on Halloween. I'm sorry. It's just not, just not. And actually, I'm not a big fan of Christmas either. But neither. I, no, I just not. Uh, okay. Like, All right. That's fine. I like that's Advent fine. a lot, but I'm going to lean towards Christmas there. Yeah. The begrudging Christmas. Yeah, I understand. My Ebenezer Scrooge understands. Um, <laughs> what was the first thing you remember being a geek for? Probably Westerns. Mm. It was probably Westerns. And it wasn't even, it was a bit of Eastwood, but I also discovered the guy who played uh, Trinity. Mm. He was so kind of, cool and geeky and at the same time you remember wild wild west uh what what the guy's name james james west was the character yeah yeah but um super geeky so much about that that i wanted my parents to call me james you should call me james because it's a cool name not craig because craig is dorky so big time westerns major geek for westerns did they ever give in and call you james no no, I, I, you know, I learned, I dodged a bullet as a baby. I was going to be called Ken. No offense to Ken's, but thank you. No, <laughs> um, I was trying to create a, a cool acronym or initials. I wanted people to call me CW, Craig mm. William, uh, William's middle name. CW never caught on. So that's fine. I'm Craig's okay. I've always liked it. <laughs> what is your geekiest musical love? Oh, again, I'm not a fan of music. I, I get obsessed. I get deeply obsessed. Um, I was deeply obsessed with the Tragically Hit for a while. Um, and I, I, need to, I need to find a band that actually pulls me out of my geekdom, right? And when I discovered Wilco, it, it's kind of funny. Like, Wilco is it. Wil- everything Wilco does, you know, and not just their music. Jeff Tweedy, who's writing books as well, um, as a songwriter, as a, how he thinks. Uh, Jeff Tweedy so much. Beck, thankfully, pulled me out of Wilco a little bit, and I was deeply, deeply obsessed with Beck for a while. But now, because Tweety just has another book out, I'm back at Tweety. Tweety, major, major obsession so much. Is there something that people think you'd be a geek for, but for whatever reason you could never get into? Wow. That's a good question. Um, Something that I would be, I would, they would think. because <laughs> I talk so much, people usually find out what I'm a geek for. You know, <laughs> I, I think like, you know, really, you know, how I, this is weird. I've made my living as an artist my whole career. That's weird. You know, I was an illustrator and now I'm, <clears throat> now I'm a designer. So people think uh, that I know a lot more about, you know, art, history and various things like that and get geeky. There was little periods where I was into it. I'm starting to get a little geeky about design because I'm teaching it right now. And I wasn't really a big geek about design, but now I'm starting to go, Oh wow. (laughs) Milton Glaser and how he changed design. So it's there. It's on the, on the edge, but I guess that'd be the only one. And and again, because people who know me know if I'm geeky about something, I'm going to sit you down and tell you about it. Well, I'm glad uh, we got a chance to sit down and talk about Samurai films. Finally. Where can people find you on social media? 
where can they not find me on social media? <laughs> I'm a, a long time early adapter. You know what they call them? Early adopters. Um, Twitter Twitter's my favorite uh, platform. I'm on there a lot. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook's kind of weird. Facebook's a little bit like, you know, um, people ask to be my friend and it's nothing personal, but Facebook is usually a smaller group of friends. I'm on Instagram if you want to see me take pictures of food all day long, because I'm very obsessed by that too. But Twitter's the main one. Uh, my handle is just C. Turleson. I talk a lot about writing film. I got a little film Twitter thing going on there and stuff. So Twitter is probably the best one. You're a great follow on Twitter. Um, and we will link to um, your books uh, in the show notes so that people can support you. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so for joining fun. me on Geek so much 4. Fun, Thanks. I knew it would be fun. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.